Good morning, CHD. You're watching this on December 15th, 2022, but we're actually pre-recording on December 8th. And that's important because we're going to be talking about the WHO, the negotiations for the new international health regulations and proposed pandemic treaty, which has now become a pandemic accord. There was a meeting for three days that has just concluded. Uh, so we will talk about that as well. And my guest is the amazing James Corbett. Everybody knows, I'm sure, but he will help us to understand what's going on with these international organizations and why we need to get out or defund them. So thank you very much for coming again, James. Well, thank you for having me here. This is, uh, as you know, an incredibly important topic. So uh, we need more eyes on this and more people looking into this other than just uh, just a few people out screaming in the wilderness here. Yes. Um, so a lot of different organizations have been meeting. Actually, the Biological Weapons Convention group, which has normally review conferences about every five years, postponed. And they have been meeting also, and I have some fears that they will decide that um, gain-of-function research is okay, even though it wasn't with the original Biological Weapons Convention. So anyway, that's something we can talk about today or another day. But we do need more eyes on these documents, on these meetings, um, to help us understand what is really going on uh, in front of our eyes and behind the scenes. So, um, James, what can you tell us about what's happened uh, these last few days? Okay, it is uh, madness and there's a lot going on. Uh, so, it, and I think, as we were saying before we started recording here, I think it is an incredibly confusing set of meetings and negotiations and things. And I think that is part partially done on purpose. But here is what we know. There is just concluded the third meeting of the intergovernmental negotiating body for a WHO instrument on pandemic prevention, preparedness and response, which is quite a mouthful. Again, I think uh, it's given the worst possible title of all possible titles in order to confuse people. That third meeting um, ran from December 5th to December 7th. And it's uh, on the WHO uh, page on their press releases. It says at this meeting, the INB will consider, did consider the conceptual zero draft of the instrument developed by the Bureau of the INB following widespread consultation, blah, blah, blah. What does all of that mean? This is not about some boring policy document about pandemic prevention. This is about the pandemic treaty, the global pandemic treaty. Um, they're not calling it the global pandemic treaty. They are calling it this instrument because they haven't decided what form it's going to take, whether what kind of document it will be, whether it'll be legally binding, whether, whether it'll be a treaty or an instrument or some other device. At any rate, they're working on the global pandemic treaty and they're not calling it that. So at this meeting, they were uh, tabling a, a zero draft for consideration that they're going to be talking about more in 2023 and potentially moving forward on. And this draft contains some worrying things. Uh, I've noted that reclaimthenet.org has been doing some coverage of this. So they have a couple of articles up about this. One World Health Organization meets to plot censorship of misinformation under international pandemic treaty. No surprise there. Another article, World Health Organization meets to discuss granting of increased surveillance powers under pandemic treaty. Again, no surprise there. Hopefully we can link up the actual um, draft document that they are they have been looking at, um, which has the actual wording of what they're what they're saying. And as usual, they are not coming out and 
necessarily saying we must censor the internet, um, but they are talking about including provisions that will require member states of the WHO to actively surveil and counter misinformation on social media. And we know exactly what that looked like and how it played out during the, uh, the past few years. Um, and again, with regards to surveillance powers, they don't come out and say, we're going to have the global vaccine passport system and whatever, but they do include language that makes it um, more and more likely that they're going to implement digital surveillance um, to try to catch the next pandemic before it starts. Again, we know exactly where this is going. And now they're trying to put this language in this document, which could be legally binding. I suppose we'll see what form it takes. Um, but this is expected to emerge as a global pandemic treaty or instrument of some sort in 2024. They are now working on what they're calling the zero draft of this this treaty. And we can get into some more details of what, what else they're working on. I want to get more explicit. What happened with the U.S. government is that it said it wanted to surveil misinformation. It wanted the tech company. So openly, it said it wanted the tech companies and the public to inform it about misinformation. But secretly behind the scenes, the federal government actually instructed the tech companies exactly what tweets and, and what who which people to censor. And that is only now coming out in this lawsuit that the um, attorney generals of Louisiana and Missouri have instituted. So we're learning this in discovery. It looks like the WHO is doing the same tactic. It says it's only surveilling, trying to find out what information is spreading, uh, you know, regarding the pandemic or whatever. Um, in fact, it turns out the WHO coined the term infodemic and has already created a little army of people to become infodemic managers and look at the internet and find out where the information is and report back to the WHO. So, I, you know, that's very curious. Um, we know this is going to be controlled. Now, what's important in the U.S. is we have a First Amendment. And so it's actually illegal for the government to censor. Um, the government is allowed to propagandize American citizens, which only came about teen as the result of an amendment to the Smith-Munt Act. So before 2014, the United States government could propagandize, in other words, lie to people around the world, but not to American citizens. I understand that that is the sort of the legal framework, but realistically, the American government propagandized yeah. American citizens before 2014. Let's make that clear. It was, it, they just came out in 2014 to say, now it's legal, guys. But they've been doing right. it for Exactly. You can't put us in jail for this now. Yeah, um, exactly. So absolutely. I mean, the United States government has been breaking the law right and left um, a lot, but particularly since the pandemic started, doing it very openly. Whereas before they tried to cover their tracks or change the law, you know, to, to cover themselves legally. But I want to add the other level of confusion to this because it is important to understand that there are sort of two different negotiations that are taking place right now that may actually merge in 2023. The other is proposals to amendments to the international health regulations, which is a type of sort of global treaty of sorts that has actually been in effect since 1969. It was most, uh, it was last revised in 2005, but as people may have seen 
over the course of this past year, a number, I think 13 more amendments to the IHR were proposed earlier this year. It was brought before the World Health Assembly, which met in May of this year, and they decided to table it for now, but they are still ongoing with negotiations about those amendments to the IHR. Those are taking place at the same time. And now the latest that I saw was a recent press release from the WHO, which is saying that their their negotiate, the IHR negotiating body, will be meeting with these, this INB body, which is negotiating the global pandemic treaty, and they may collaborate and work on areas of overlap. So now it's getting more and more confusing. But as some people have pointed out, and probably not without cause, the global pandemic treaty could be a smokescreen. And they could be trying to put this out. Hey, guys, look at this. You want to oppose this. Meanwhile, sneaking real things with real teeth in through the back door, as it were, by amending the IHR. Um, that's certainly a possibility. They could choose to merge these two separate streams. They may choose to go with one of these instruments or the other or both of them. There's a lot of different possibilities on the table, but they're all going to be being discussed next year. Right. And and what they want is something that is legally binding, um, claiming that nations didn't have to obey before. And so the world didn't know about pandemics on time because nations didn't disclose, for example, or nations didn't close their borders or close them when they shouldn't have or this or that. And so they don't want the nations to be able to do do what they want to do, but have to obey, you know, whatever the WHO comes up with. Now, all of this is predicated on the fact that actually a government or an international organization can influence the the way a pandemic plays out. And in fact, we've never seen that happen before. In fact, it can't um, because for so many reasons. First of all, a lot of the, this is all about money, you know, I, well, not all, it's also about control, but a lot of it is about money. So creating new um, institutions that will collect more dues and collect more donations. Um, and we're talking billions to trillions here, a lot of money um, that will allegedly go to improve health in various ways to make us more resilient and ready for a pandemic, as well as to deal with a pandemic when it occurs. But what we know is that the last two pandemics that were declared by the WHO are both due to lab-designed organisms, monkeypox and COVID. And if we give them more money, well, where has the money in the U.S. gone for pandemic preparedness? It's gone into developing a monkeypox and a COVID and other potential biological weapons. So a lot of that money allegedly for biological defense is used to create organisms and say, well, duh, you know, we have to be prepared for what might show up. So let's, you know, build some new new bugs. A another issue is, you know, are we competent to, to address a pandemic? So, you know, we can't make a vaccine normally for about 10 years. That's probably 10 or 15 years as average from conception to development. And if you want a safe vaccine, an effective vaccine, that's what it takes. But if you want a garbage vaccine that's neither safe nor effective, you know, you can make one in a day. And um, with the RNA platform, that is the hope that they can make one in a day or rather in a hundred days. So CEPI, which is an organization founded by Bill Gates, but he's, he's pulled in uh, some other countries and other donors is an organization completely founded on the premise that we need vaccines for pandemics 
or biological warfare, and we can create them, or we can fund people who will create them. And they are promising vaccines in 100 days from the time a pandemic is designated. So very, very, very dangerous. You can't do it. It doesn't matter how much money you have or who you are. Um, you know, Fauci had lots of money and we know who he was and he couldn't do it. Um, do they even want to do it? That's another question. Was the intention to give us a vaccine that would harm us? We don't know the answer, but certainly they're, keep, they're still pushing a vaccine that has harmed us, uh, much more harm than good. Presumably then that is the intention. So uh, back to you, James. All right, a number of things to pick up there. And my again, my head is spinning because there's so many different issues on the table. But one thing I wanna underline is that you bring up an important point, which is that there is the money aspect to this, absolutely. And that is, I think, how so many of the different players at this globalist table get drawn into um, this arena is that obviously we're talking billions, ultimately trillions, if they completely reshape the global landscape as they are planning. Um, are on the table. And obviously there are a lot of people incentivized to participate in this redrafting of a legal instrument, legally binding instrument with teeth um, for, again, those obvious monetary reasons. But at base, I think this really is more about the control agenda. And I think if we step back a little and put what's happening right now in its sort of bigger context, I think we can see what is happening quite clearly because Obviously, I would say, I'm sure most of your audience would understand that the concept, even the concept of health, public health, what is that? How do you define it? Medicine, wellness, what are these things? Um, obviously, the devil is in the details. And although it's presumably been going on for many decades at this point, certainly I would say identifiably, we could put our finger on the year 2005 as the year that the World Health Organization started operationalizing the weaponization of those terms. And they did that specifically through the creation of the, the bureaucratic infrastructure for the world that is taking shape around us right now. One of which was that 2005 adoption of the um, amendments to the international health regulations at that time. And one of the things that that IHR 2005 edition brought into the global public conversation was the public health emergency of international concern, the PHEIC, which, hey, I don't know, if I'm reading that acronym, I would probably pronounce it fake. So there you go, appropriately enough. But what the PHEIC does is to allow the WHO to uh, declare the, the, oh, there's a public health emergency, is international concern, and that allows them to operationalize well, a number of things. And you don't have to take my word for it. Even back in 2014, during the Ebola scare, um, you had Newsweek reporting that um, the decision to trigger the PHEIC um, could mean anything from mobilizing NATO military assets to restricting travel in and out of countries where Ebola is present, uh, present, according to Stephen Morrison, the director of the Global Health Policy Center. So you see this, they already have some teeth to actually affect something. And that was brought in in that 2005 changeover. And although I don't know if there's deeper meaning to this, but 2005 is one of the only two years in history in which there were two meetings of the World Health Assembly, which is the governing body of the WHO. Um, because in 2005, in I believe May, they adopted the IHR um, uh, amendments. And then in November of that year, they met again to appoint 
Margaret Chan as director general of the WHO. And it was under Margaret Chan's leadership that the the PHEIC, the fake, started to to come in and be oper and and weaponized. Um, it was employed first in the 2009 swine flu scandal, which again, I am sure your audience is familiar with. If they are not, please check, please check my website. Just type in swine flu. I've done a lot of work on that, or I did a lot of work on that at the time. Of course, that was a hype over nothing, which again we can see identifiably the point at which they started to operationalize and weaponize the terms, the definitions of terms in order to make them more effective. For example, I've linked to it many times. I'll link to it again. You can go to the Wayback Saved Archived page of the WHO's Influenza Pandemic page from April of 2009. And then you can go to the archived page from May of 2009. And you'll start to note some differences in the language surrounding their definition of international uh, influenza pandemic, one of which involves large-scale death and one of which doesn't. Um, one is just, well, there's spreading in multiple countries of a flu. That is an inter in influenza pandemic that then can trigger something like what happened just months after that change took place uh, at the WHO level. Suddenly they're triggering it over this swine flu, which after it all comes out, it turns out that the scientific advisory board that was advising Chan in, to declare that PHAIC just happened to be a bunch of people sitting on the boards of various vaccine and pharmaceutical manufacturers who directly benefited from that calling of the PHEIC, which of course instantly necessitates member states to start stockpiling various pharmaceuticals and what have you. So what happened was shortly before the 2009 swine flu pandemic, um, which was milder than all the normal, most of the normal influenza pandemics every single year. But just before it happened, there was a change in the definition of what it took to, to call for the director general of who to call a pandemic. So as uh, James said, they took out widespread deaths and disease. And basically, all you needed was a new virus that spread through countries. And that could be a cold, a cold. And so that changed, but was already what was already existing were sleeper contracts, which which meant that once the director general did declare a pandemic uh, of you know international importance, then these contracts that had already been negotiated between manufacturers and countries with the help of the WHO would come into force, and the countries had to buy vaccines. So tens of billions of dollars were spent on vaccines for a pandemic that was hardly more than a cold in 2009. And that was the purpose of it. And then it was alleged that these advisors to the WHO um, themselves were given millions of dollars in uh, you know, boons from the vaccine manufacturers. Absolutely important stuff to, to be taking into consideration here. So that's, that started in 2009. The the cork was off the bottle at that point. The seal um, came off. And so they have now used uh, and employed that tactic. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times. Swine flu, 2009. Polio, 2014. Ebola, 2014. Zika, 2016. Ebola, 2018. COVID, 2020, obviously. And then monkeypox this year. So this has been declared a number of times now. They've definitely gone to this well a number of times. One of the things that people are concerned about in the IHR amendments that are being proposed and that are on the table for negotiation right now is that it gives the director general 
even more power to unilaterally declare things like international emergencies, even when the state parties involved do not agree with him. And people are saying, look, this is going to give the director general of the WHO near dictatorial powers to be able to come in and just declare these types of emergencies and who can stop him. But actually, that already exists because I don't know if people saw it, but it was an extraordinary thing that took place with this monkeypox PHEIC declaration earlier this year. The Scientific Advisory Board, the council that's supposed to advise the WHO director general on whether or not to declare this public health emergency, um, which, to be fair, I don't believe it is binding. Their, their decision is not binding on the director general, but generally, well, up to this point, it, uh, the director general has always at least gone through that fig leaf of a process and gone along with the, the uh, advisory board. In this case, the advisory board voted nine to six against declaring an international emergency for monkeypox. Uh, but uh, Tedros, the current director general, stepped in as a, what he said, tiebreaker. I, I don't know, nine to six doesn't sound like a tie to me. Anyway, he can't, stepped in as a tiebreaker and unilaterally declared it is a public health emergency of international concern. So the director general already has assumed the power to be able to just simply declare these things and start um, putting the teeth in the WHO system. Um, I, I think the bigger point that I'm trying to make here is that the uh, not only does all of do a lot of these powers already exist and can be sort of snatched in these power grabs that was even noted in Science Magazine at the time. They were saying this is an unprecedented step. Uh, Tedros has just come out and sort of unilaterally declared this emergency. We've never seen that before. It's a big deal. But um, not only do these powers sort of already exist, or at least they're trying to take them, but also I think just the language and terminology of what we're dealing with is so important. And the way they define these terms, like pandemic, the way that changed in order to allow them to, to declare the swine flu pandemic of 2009, and of course, all those subsequent emergencies, but even questions of what is public health? What is medicine? What is wellness? What is, what is equity, which is another one of these words that's being inserted in these draft uh, uh, negotiation documents, which are left undefined and will presumably be defined by the people with the power to make them um, make them have legal ramifications. And we know where this is going. Uh, and I believe you wanted to get into the concept of one health, which is this new buzzword term that they're throwing around at the international level. And I think this might be the time to start introducing people to that. Yeah. Um, so what I want to say is that even though the WHO declared these two, you know, nonsense uh, epidemics, the 2009 swine flu and monkeypox as pandemics of international concern, they didn't do that for Ebola in West Africa until nine months after that pandemic started. And then after being criticized for their gross laxity in 2014, the WHO did the same thing again. And they had a, an Ebola epidemic in Zaire um, or now Congo in 2018 and 19, and it took them 11 months to declare a pandemic. This is because, of course, nobody was making any money for drugs or vaccines for Africans. And even though they had a uh, vaccine that had been, you know, tested out in that first Ebola epidemic in West Africa, the 
2018 one in the Congo used that vaccine and used their usual pandemic preparedness strategies, and yet the death rate was 66% in the later Ebola epidemic. And the local people hated the WHO and the international health uh, providers so much that there were 300 separate attacks on healthcare workers in the Congo in, in 2018 and 2019. Now that shows you the international organization is not doing something right. They're doing something wrong. They're trying to control people. Basically what they cared about was stopping spread to wealthy countries. They weren't primarily concerned about helping the Africans who were there. They wanted to stop them from moving, but they weren't treating them effectively. Um, all right, so moving on to One Health. One Health is, is what I call a bogus concept that was uh, spread at Davos 10 years ago. Um, it's been popularized primarily by the CDC, also by the World Economic Forum and by the WHO. And what this concept claims is that you can't really deal with health in just one species. You have to consider all the species, humans, animals, plants, wild animals, as well as livestock, because we can all give each other diseases apparently. Um, and while we're at it, let's throw in ecosystems and land and water as well. So basically you're taking all the resources of the entire planet and throwing them into this bogus concept that means nothing called One Health. And um, the scary thing is that many of the people negotiating the, the treaty and the international health regulation amendments are demanding that One Health practices, that the term One Health be included in these legal documents. So in addition to having terms like sustainability and equity that who's, who are, which are undefined, we're also going to include land, water, fish, you know, wild animals and, and plants, both plants that farmers grow and other plants in this whole concept, which presumably is, an, is a mechanism by which um, globalists can invoke uh, their need to control all these other entities, like everything on the planet, um, in the name of healthcare or public health or controlling a pandemic. And so it's very scary. It's, it's a concept. A lot of money has been put into this. There are people all over the world that have been given money, particularly veterinarians um, and public health professionals, given billions of dollars to uh, join up, you know, to sign up with One Health and uh, continue to say, we need One Health, we need One Health. In fact, very few diseases in the Western world come from wild animals or livestock, you know, or, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've seen a few, but it's very few. This is not a concept that is meaningful for public health in the first or second worlds. Po I, you know, I can't say whether maybe there's some usefulness to it in uh, Africa, but I doubt it because we know the people who are pushing these concepts are not are, are the same people who basically um, harmed the Africans with their Ebola um, strategies. So, um, but One Health, you're going to hear the term. It's big. They love it, and um, it's going to be dumped on us, even though 
they have a hard time defining it and they have exactly a hard time right. giving examples yeah. it's of, mushily of what, defined. You know, how it like, helps. Yeah, like so many of these terms, it's mushily defined and left sort of vaguely open to interpretation in a number of ways. And then it relies, even the definitions that they do provide are themselves have all these undefined terms, precisely so that they can start to make it into this nebulous concept that can be anything that they want. And I keep coming back to this because I think it's important. It goes back down to the fundamental question of what, how they define health, because the WHO constitution itself says that its main objective is the attainment by all peoples of the highest possible level of health. All right, great. That sounds wonderful in a mushy kind of nebulous way. Yeah, highest possible level of health for everyone. Sure, sounds great. Wait, what does that what does that mean? What is levels of health? And and how do we measure that? And who gets to decide that? And under what classification system? I, I think most people just go into it thinking that, well, health means, well, I'm healthy. I'm not sick. I feel okay. I'm able to perform as usual. I'm healthy. But are you really healthy? What level of health have you attained? Could it be higher? Oh, you, you're a little overweight. We'll have to put you on an enforced diet because obviously obesity is a, is a health concern and it could be a public health concern uh, considering how the stress that you're putting on these socialized healthcare systems, because of course everyone has to be included in equity and all of that. So now we all have to be standardized under this rubric. One can see how just the weaponization of the term health itself can be used for the, the money agenda, obviously, because if health means, well, you're going to have to take, take your medicine, take your big pharma pharmaceuticals in order to maintain your health at the highest possible level of health, no less. Um, obviously for that, but for the control agenda too. So just to sort of skip to the end of this argument, I think all of this comes uh, uh, crystal clear when we recognize that all of these different strands and threads that are being tied together in a nice sounding, but really uh, nefarious agenda, like One Health, is it, it is a group of oligarchical elites who are trying to monopolize as much of the earth's resources, including its human resources as possible and to bring that under their control. And they will use absolutely any and every possible leverage point in order to gain more of that control. And one of them is public health and this concept. And if we can define it as one health, well, you're not healthy unless your entire ecosystem is healthy. And how do we do that? Well, we'll have to come in and manage and steward over all these resources and stop you from using those resources, you naughty person all in the name of preserving this one health. It is such an insidious agenda. It goes absolutely to the root of what we're really dealing with here, which is not an agenda of uh, uh, of trying to, to uh, keep people healthy. It, this has nothing to do with health in the way that the sort of the Bill Gates GMO engineering of the earth is not about trying to save Mother Earth or anything along those lines. It is an agenda of control. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's useful to look back and say what have the what has the WHO done that has been useful. So they did not recommend vitamin D or zinc or any over-the-counter remedies. Um, the WHO did collaborate in India with a program that gave out a bunch of uh, medicines, both over-the-counter and um, prescriptions. So they gave out. Um, ivermectin in, in a one uh, state in India, and along with a pulse oximeter, masks, gloves, 
and a variety of other things. And they charge people two or three dollars for, for a bag. But the WHO would not put on its website what was in the bag. So they hid that and it, it took a, a yeoman's work to finally discern that ivermectin was part of the kit that was, and it was given out to something like a hundred million people um, in one part of India. But generally the WHO did not recommend vitamins, you know, aspirin, blood thinners, um, steroids, and the things that really worked for COVID. Um, it's, as I said, there were these two large Ebola outbreaks and um, the WHO did not respond in a positive way. So what is public health? What can it do? What should it do and what shouldn't it do? Um, I spoke with someone yesterday who had worked at the WHO for a long time and he told me there are some things that are useful. So the WHO is should standardize uh, certain things such as malaria bed nets, making sure they all have sufficient, you know, medication in them uh, so that they work. Um, the WHO could serve as a place for nations to discuss things. And there are certain programs such as malaria or tuberculosis programs that some countries cannot run on their own. And WHO has been somewhat successful with those programs. So there is a role for some degree of international collaboration with health, but those are real, you know, and chronic conditions, malaria and tuberculosis, that bo both of which probably take about a million lives a year in Africa. So uh, it would be good for an entity to take care of that. But what else does WHO do? So they the WHO spends uh, over $200 million a year on travel. And Margaret Chan used to travel first class. Um, when they were managing the Ebola outbreak, they spent $240 million on travel in one year. The WHO gets a lot of money from private funders as well as, na so nations have an, an allotment they have to pay, but they can pay more. But all the, almost all the extra money that the WHO gets um, outside of the required funding um, is earmarked for certain projects. And so, uh, you know, that was one claim was that WHO didn't have the money to deal with these Ebola epidemics in Africa. Well, I mean, if you're the WHO, what do you... What is more important than dealing with an Ebola epidemic in Africa? Really, you know, that's what the world cares about. And if you can't do that, why do you exist? You know, and if you're spending, uh, you know, I don't know, they spend uh, probably $3.9 billion a year at this point. Um, you know, what, what have you to show for it apart from these programs that only cost a few million dollars? Um, Jeffrey Sachs has called for, he is a, is a uh, consultant to the WHO. He's a professor at Columbia. He's a very famous economist, uh, international economist who allegedly wants to help the very poor. Um, and he has called for the WHO to be funded with $60 billion a year. Uh, or elsewhere, he said, one-tenth of a percent of, of GDP of the wealthier countries should go for global public health. And this would uh, be, of course, under the WHO. He also called for the WHO to manage gain-of-function research. Now, that's very dangerous 
gain of function research is, is biological warfare research. It was banned by the original Biological Weapons Convention, which by the way, was negotiated outside the WHO and came into force in 1975. Um, but now with the review conference, there is the potential to make gain of function research acceptable. Okay, it goes on. It goes on, but it goes on because the Biological Weapons Convention has not had any provisions for inspections or, or standards for telling a country what it can and can't do or for punishment. And the review conference says all these many review conferences that have been conducted were supposed to add those provisions to the treaty, but were never able to do so. And in recent years, always because the United States has stood in the way. But now um, that the United States loves gain of function research and we um, allowed Ralph Barrick and others to conduct gain of function research. Gain of function means you're adding um, more virulent, more pathologic characteristics to microorganisms. Right? You're get, you're, they're gaining function, which means they're making, you're making them worse. They spread more or they cause more disease or something. And so that's why I would say that the COVID pandemic is due to a gain of function organism, uh, which has, has gained functions relative to the known bat coronaviruses. Um, it's more infectious. It's, it's more deadly than the vast majority of them. Anyway, um, we don't want to make gain-of-function research legal. We want to get rid of it. The people of the world need to say, look, we ha already have a biological weapons convention. It needs to be strengthened so nobody can do gain-of-function research or whatever you want to call it. It used to be called biodefense. Before that, it was called germ warfare research. Nobody should do it. There should be inspections. There should be punishments. And those are the documents we need, not having the WHO manage it, whatever manage means. Exactly right. I mean, management is really the, the concern here because I would say that, yes, uh, you could, uh, you don't need an international body that has 194 or 196 signatories with legal binding documents and all these treaties and other th things in order to do things like uh, uh, bed net campaigns and medications and things that can be proven to be beneficial, countries will want them and will adopt them. They don't need to be part of some sort of vast treaty system in order for that to happen. Now, maybe you do need some sort of international uh, international donor system so that uh, countries that literally can't run those types of programs can get help doing so. But again, you do not need this international body with teeth in order to do that. And if we bring up the issue of funding, it was something that I pointed out in my Who is Bill Gates documentary that I did a couple of years ago. At that time in 2020, according to the most recent uh, funding documents that we had for the WHO at that time, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, this private entity, this NGO, um, was uh, the second largest donor to the WHO, right behind the United States. Now, interestingly enough, the latest 2022 donor reports that I can find do not list the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They are only lists of donor countries. So you can see the US and China and Germany and whatever the other states are, but there's no mention of Bill and Melinda Gates fund funding anymore because I think people started to realize that, oh, perhaps this philanthrocapitalist, as he has been termed, um, is uh, obviously supporting ideas for of making health, distributing public health, 
stewarding over global public health that directly benefits the companies, the pharmaceutical companies and vaccine manufacturers that he is invested in. It is such an obvious and transparent scam that they have just basically covered it up. And now how much does the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation give to the WHO? Who knows? But then the WHO also gets to parade around and go, look, we just don't have enough money. Uh, Let me put my conspiracy tinfoil hat on and say, hmm, slow footing the 2014 or 2018 declarations and then uh, giving uh, a response that actually probably makes things worse or it certainly doesn't didn't cure the situation uh it, it creates the very problem that they, they then get to come along and say hey look at this horrible problem we need more power we need more money oh poor us we just don't have enough resources to deal with this we need a new international legally binding document to give us even more power to step in even without the consent of states involved in order to uh, go around and and start intervening in various sovereign sovereign states uh, public health uh, programs exactly as oh I don't know Bill Gates was proposing remember just uh, about a year ago when he released his book um, about the the next preventing the next pandemic or whatever he called it in which he was talking about the need for some sort of global firefighting source it will be a team of pandemic responders who will be able to jump in at a moment's notice anywhere in the world and deploy with their their mRNA vaccines or whatever they have in order to start uh, acting. That is the vision. And lo and behold, somehow or other, Bill Gates' vision is starting to come true with these draft uh, treaty negotiations that they're working on right now. You know, when uh, Trump pulled us out of the WHO, which didn't last very long because Biden put us back in, and Trump then gave pretty much the $500 million that we're spending on the WHO to Gavi, which was almost the same thing. But anyway, when that happened, Tedros said, because the WHO has been looking for other funding mechanisms for a long time, Tedros said they were going to start a foundation. And so now I'm wondering if Gates mm. is donating to the foundation. Uh, it and could not be, yes. To w- you know, that's that's fascinating. I really need to do the deep dive on that because it's very possible that they've just now done some jiggery pokery to sort of hide the the non-country donations that are coming in now. There's an issue. Should we ask to defund the WHO or should we just get out of the WHO? What makes more sense? Uh, I, uh, well, I... Not that I have any say over any of this, but certainly if I was in a position, I would withdraw as a signatory. Because what what benefit does a country like the United States get from being a signatory to the World Health Organization? It is a relinquishing of sovereign powers, and it does commit the United States to these various uh, uh, treaties or whatever they're called instruments um, like the international health regulations that are binding on the countries that sign up to them. And I know that that's an abrogation. No, no treaty can override the Constitution of the United States, right, guys? But like all of this, it really is a question of what they can get away with. I mean, no one said that Tedros has the power to tie break a nine to six decision by saying, OK, it is a health <laughs> emergency. I don't care what you guys say. There's that, where Where is that written in the legalese? How does he have that power whatever, he took it. And what are you going to do about it? And I think it's the same thing 
with uh, the World Health Organization and other things, it should not exist. I mean, yes, as you say, there are certain things and programs and that we could imagine in an idealized world that could run, but this type of organization, the way it has been set up at, uh, and the, the treaties and other things that underlie it are themselves power grabs. And that is how they are being used. And we have to understand that this is about control. This is not about public health. Yes. And when they start bringing in water and land and wild animals and plants, you know, that then, you know, this is not about public health. And again, how do we need public health? Because public health has been so harmful during the pandemic. It's public health that, you know, didn't tell us and still hasn't that vitamin D is helpful. Even after Fauci admitted he himself was taking vitamin D and vitamin C. Um, at yeah. the beginning of the pandemic. As but long as we're on the Rockefeller medicine paradigm of what health is, then I think we're on the wrong track and we're going to be led down the garden path because that whole paradigm has been brought in largely to forward a certain obvious, again, a monetary benefit to the companies that then can provide health, but also to people who want to consolidate and control and keep other other conceptions of what health is out of the public mind. No, if you're sick, yes, you must right. go to this pharmacy and buy a medicine. That That's what health is, right? No, it isn't. But that is the conception that the World Health Organization is based on. Yes, absolutely. Um, and in the United States, where medicines are so expensive, um, you know, the federal government has been willing to spend billions of dollars um, bribing the media and bribing the medical system to, to enforce certain drugs on patients so that if you go, if you went into a hospital during, you know, in the last uh, almost three years and you had a positive COVID test and you were in the hospital, you got IV remdesivir for up to five days um, and some people up to 10 days if they were in a trial. And yet there's no evidence that it actually works and it has killed people um, and caused a lot of uh, renal insufficiency and, and kidney failure. Um, but you got it because the hospitals were bribed. They were bribed and they and therefore they had to make it a standing order and it was almost impossible to not get it. Now, if we all think that's terrible, we can't believe it happened. It's still happening. It hasn't been stopped even now that the public knows about it. Well, it's not going to stop with a pandemic and remdesivir. You know, the U.S. government now has the power to, when you go in the hospital with diabetes, to say what medicine you're going to get, or to say who gets to be admitted to the hospital, you know, or what an outpatient gets. If, if you have a broken arm, you know, what kind of cast you get? I mean, we're looking at a, um, a real pivot point. We've just gone through a point where the, the federal government um, has usurped powers it never had before it shouldn't have it doesn't have any expertise and it's proven itself to be a failure at prescribing our medications so um you know we've we've maybe given it a pass because it was a pandemic but we can't we have to realize what has happened we've just given up a great deal of our individual sovereignty and we have to now guard we have to get it back and we have to guard every incursion on our own personal sovereignty, local sovereignty, state and federal. And by empowering these uh, multinational organizations, which really, you know, haven't shown that they care about, have never shown that they actually want to help 
poor people or anyone else apart from themselves. Um, you know, there's just no excuse for allowing them to take over, to encroach more and more on our ability to make decisions for ourselves. So important, so important. And you would know this better than I would, but my understanding is that it's the standard of care. Um, if you don't provide whatever the standard of care is for a given condition, you will be legally liable for it. So you better do it or you're going to be on the hook. So yes, that kind of control, the centralization of control of over how people are treated is is of course, it's a wonderful lucrative thing for the, the big pharma companies. And it is the magical way to control a population um, at a centralized level uh, down to what they are ingesting in their bodies or not. Absolutely incredibly important power. And let me, let me be the slippery slope guy. In fact, we don't even have to imagine the slippery slope. We can see it playing out. When you have a socialized healthcare system where uh, it is... Uh, public health really takes on meaning in that system because your personal individual choices, your health, your body will affect everyone. Everyone will have to pay if you end up in a hospital or if you're sick, everyone will have to pay for it. So everyone has a stake. They are stakeholders in your body to use the current globalist lingo. And what does that mean when we start bringing into the equation, oh, a medically assisted uh, aid in dying or whatever they're calling it, made? these days, which is happening in a number of countries, including in my home and native land of Canada, where for the last six years, um, medically assisted death has been offered to people only in the most terrible circumstances, end of life care, obviously for people who have terminal illness and are about to die, they, they can choose to go through a medically assisted uh, process to, to help ease them uh, uh, off this mortal coil. Uh, and of course, when this was instituted, you had the crazies arguing slippery slope. This is going to be applied to everything. Well, now, as of 2023, people who are suffering from mental discomfort will be uh, uh, eligible for that uh, assisted suicide. But Beyond that, there is now a huge scandal going on in Canada right now. Parliamentary hearings and other things are happening as more people are coming out and saying, uh, I was a, a, a Paralympic uh, army vet who, uh, uh, because I was paralyzed and I needed a, st a stair lift for my wheelchair to go up and down the stairs, it was taking too long to get installed. I was literally offered medically assisted death as a way out of this problem for me, because obviously I'm in such discomfort. Uh, this is happening more and more, and more people are stepping forward with this. This is where this is going. Who's to say that the highest level of health means that you are a happy, healthy, functioning human being? Maybe the best that we can offer you is death. And hey, what if that became the standard of care? Oh, you're, you're depressed. Oh, your, your ESG score isn't high enough. Whatever the case may be, we can imagine it. And it, again, it may sound crazy, slippery slope type of stuff until you start seeing what's playing out already in the headlines, let alone where they're going with this ultimate agenda. The Nazis started with uh, disabled children, you know, and psychiatrically impaired adults, and they had the doctors and nurses participate, and it was for the good of the country, and they believed in eugenics and in building a, you know, stronger society. Um, and uh, that's exactly, uh, although with in Canada, it looks like it may be a money-saving 
effort, this medically assisted that suicide. Too. But Again, there's many agendas at play. Yeah. 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 Um, life you know, unfit it's not, it's for life, right? That was the, uh, the term in, that they used in Nazi Germany. And absolutely, it is the same impulse of control and of getting to decide who lives and who dies. That is the ultimate, ultimate power. And that's the one that I think, I don't know how many steps down the road that is, but that is, I think that's what's on the table. Uh, yes, you're making me very sad because I know that doctors have this power and we were never taught in medical school about it and about how to use it and uh, handle it, how to handle our own emotions, you know, and understand what we're doing. And I've seen this used very, um, without a lot of thought by First to do no harm, right? The Hippocratic Oath. And they're trying to get rid of the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, that's old. That's yes. thousands of years. Let's, yes. let's get rid of that. First do no harm. Oh, no, no, no. We can't have that. Absolutely. Um, th by the way, the Hippocratic Oath also said no abortions. Um, mm. So they've already gotten rid of that. The, yeah. They don't have medical students take that part of it anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I don't have a, I don't have an opinion on abortion, but um, it's, it's sort of like medically assisted death. I think there are cases uh, where it's a good thing, but it's a, it's a slippery slope. And it's always, for me, it's always a problem when you start get, getting governmental power into that, that it starts to become legally uh, part of a legal framework that is going to be controlled by the same people who are in control of these types of institutions and bodies that we know have been taken over and are being weaponized against the general public. And until people start realizing that, um, many people can be led along by these nice sounding platitudes. Again, one health, public health, these things sound great, equity, inclusion, yay. But when you start to dig into the details, that is where the real nightmare starts to arise. And I'm sorry to sadden you with this, but this is what we're facing. And I think we have to face up to it and really see what's happening so that we know not to go down this path. Thank you, James. This is, you know, here we are. We are at a critical point. Um, we are facing possibly the apocalypse, and it requires everybody to get themselves educated, to think carefully about these issues, and um, to decide where your own red line is that you won't cross or you won't let someone else cross. Um, in the US, we have a lot of case law that says, yes, you have sovereignty over your own body, bodily autonomy, my body, my choice. There's a lot of case law to support that. Um, but that, but the courts and the government have been ignoring it, and we have to, you know, stop letting that happen. Um, yes. Interestingly, uh, yesterday, the um, enough senators threatened that they would not um, uh, support the appropriations bill for the for De Department of Defense unless they got rid of the um, mandates for COVID vaccines for military service members. So it looks like that has just gone away. Um, so, I mean, it was illegal to begin with. It was illegal for the past year, um, but it's finally going away because members of Congress who hold the purse strings 
yeah. finally, so, finally said but enough. But wait until so, the World Health so Organization far. passes some sort of global pandemic tr treaty that mandates that member states will vaccinate in the event of blah, blah, blah. Again, that's something that's on the table. But can we wrap up this conversation with a bit of a call to action? Because I, as I hope I've expressed here, there's there's a lot of different things going on on a lot of different levels and meetings that are taking place that... Uh, wait, wait, are they meeting about this or that? Or where's the draft of this document? It is a nightmare mess. And I think it is being done on purpose that way to to keep us uh, sort of off guard and not knowing what's going on until, oh, oh they passed it. It's done. So I want to call on people out there who are in or are interested in this conversation and what is going on. I, I need your eyes and ears on this as well. And I, I the more the more hands make light work or whatever that phrase is, uh, I, I would call on people Keep your eye on the, these WHO pronouncements and the, I know it's not fun. It's it's a chore, but going through their press releases and finding the the draft documents and things that are out there and uh, and raise that alarm and bring it to my attention, uh, you know, contact me through the website. I am very much interested in this, but I can't, I can't do all this research by myself. Thank you. Yes, I I actually have been uh, looking for a volunteer to go through the um, Biological Weapons Convention Review Conference documents um, because I can't do it. And um, so I, too, will post some of these documents. I'll post locations for documents on my Substack, and hopefully people will start looking through them. We have, you know, wonderful crowdsourcing uh, going through the Pfizer documents, for example, hundreds of people. Are, are doing that. And um, so we need the same thing now. And I thank you very much. And yeah, you'll have an opportunity on my Substack too, to post comments, tell, tell us where to look, tell us where the important things are and let's all work together on this because it's really serious. Thank you. Let's keep our so eyes much. on the balls, guys. This is this is the this is the game for all the marbles, as it were. So let's let's do this. <laughs>